And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when they had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you that they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you, and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me? Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. With Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, 
and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning. Would you go with me and bow with me in prayer, asking God by His Spirit to speak to us from His Word. Oh, Father, we praise Your name. We thank You for the truth You have revealed to us. We thank You for the way You have guided Paul's life. We thank You for the fact that You have inscripturated, You have recorded these things for our own benefit. Father, by Your Holy Spirit, would You speak to us now? I pray that You would use my words to address us, to engage with us. We desire to submit to You and to Your ways. We pray this in the name of Christ for His glory and honor, and through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I know it's Mother's Day, and, uh, and this passage presents us with a trial, with a case. It's as if we are being in this court proceedings, and we get to hear how it went. This is the official, the first official uh, proceeding of uh, Paul's uh, law court of Paul's, of the accusations brought against Paul by the Jews. This is, this is what we get here, the, the first, first official accusation against Paul before Roman, a uh, Roman court of law. We know that Felix uh, was the judge. Uh, we see this in verse 10. Uh, Paul describes Felix as in the following way, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation. So Luke takes time to let us know how this trial went before this first official Roman judge, Roman governor appointed by Rome over the nation of Israel. Now if we look closer to Paul's defense of himself, we realize that Paul here is not defending himself alone. This this trial, this defense is not about saving his own skin, merely. That actually here, Paul is seeking to actually defend the way of Christ. Look at verse 14. Paul says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. In other words, Paul's worship of God is a worship according to the way. Yet many Jews considered this way a sect. Many Jews considered this way a defection, a separation, a fallout from Judaism. And Paul considered, was considered one of the leaders of this sect. In verse 5, the Jews described Paul as a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now this word, a ringleader, uh, means to be the first of the group. To be the first leader. There might be more leaders, but here's the first of the leaders of the group. And the group he was leading was a sect of the Nazarenes. By the way, to modern ears, to us this morning, this label, sect of the Nazarenes, doesn't communicate much. It doesn't, doesn't bring up any feelings inside of us. But this was a derogatory name. It was a derogatory title for at least two, two reasons. When, when the Jews describe this, this way of, of Christianity or the way of Christ by this title, the way of the Nazarenes, well, first of all, 
Nazareth was a very small town. It was a village. So pronouncing or identifying a, a movement by a very small origin, by a very small town, was a derogatory way. It's like, look at this movement of, of Nazareth, of, of Nazarenes. Who, who, what is Nazareth? But there's a second reason why it was derogatory, and even more so because of the second reason, is because Jesus himself, remember how he was identified on the cross as Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews? So when, when Jesus was identified as the King of the Jews, it was Jesus of Nazareth. The only King of the Jews who was crucified came from Nazareth. So calling this way of Jesus a sect of the Nazarenes was a very derogatory description. It was a way of associating this sect with, with a guy who was crucified. A sect of the Nazarenes. That's why when Paul defends himself, he's not just defending his own life, but also the way of Christ, with these, which these Jews described a sect in a derogatory way. As we will see, the way of Christ is Paul's main focus here, even after the official trial is over. Even while Paul is still held in prison and continues to speak about Felix, what will Felix speak about? Felix will, uh, I mean, what will Paul speak to Felix about? Paul will speak to him about the way of Christ. So the theme of this chapter is the way of Christ. And we see a couple things about this way of Christ as Paul seeks to address the Jews, as Paul seeks to address this Roman governor and this Roman judge, both in, during the trial and afterwards. We see the way of Christ defended. We see the way of Christ defined. We see the way of Christ declared and applied. The way of Christ defended. In verse, five, at verse 1, we are told that um, five days after Paul arrived in Caesarea, his uh, accusers arrived from Jerusalem to Caesarea to bring legal accusations, official accusations against Paul. However, when they come to him, or when they come to Caesarea, these Jewish leaders employ the services of a lawyer called Tertullus. It's interesting that these Jewish leaders were not able or were not willing to bring these accusations themselves but had to work through the skills of another person, another spokesman, skilled in rhetoric and skilled in lawful procedures. Just, just notice the fact, why is this guy Tertullus showing up to be a spokesman for the high priest and for the Jewish team that came to bring accusations against Paul? Well, as we will see, Tertullus was skilled in manipulation and deceitful speech. In verse 2, Tertullus begins by using flattery and lacking honesty. Now, um, how do we know this? Well, um, it's great that we actually have some uh, historical accounts of, uh, of this guy, um, Felix. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us of, uh, about Felix's governorship, that it was marked by anything except peace. It was actually a time of, of revolt. He was often called, oftentimes called to Rome because of the, of the riots that were going on 
uh, during Felix's governorship over that region. And actually, our own text tells us that this, this guy, Felix, a judge, he was not really a just judge, was he? He was expecting to be bribed. It's not a good picture of a good judge. That's not a judge who, who, who governs rightly. And then at the end of the passage, we're told that he was actually whimsically making favors. The reason why he let Paul stay in prison was because he wanted to do the Jews a favor. Even though Lysias has sent him a letter telling him that this guy, Paul, has nothing worthy to be blamed of, to be accused of. But, but Tertullus was anything but a man of peace. He was anything but a man of reforms in the nation. Yet look at how Tertullus describes Felix. Verse 2, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. Friends, none of this was true. Flattery speaks positively in a dishonest way. That's what flattery is. It's to lie and speak dishonestly, but in a positive way. You speak that which is not true about someone else in positive terms. Well, the, the Jewish leaders had to, had to pay money for this kind of speech, right? They, they knew that Felix was not, not the right kind of guy, but, uh, but they had to pay money. So, so they bring in, and we don't actually know if they paid money or not, or, or Tertullus was doing the service as a volunteer. But bottom line is, the Jewish leaders employ his services. And after flattery was over, Tertullus turns his attention to speaking deceptively against Paul. In the first description, Tertullus brings of Paul is in verse 5. For we, and listen to the picture. For we have found this man a plague. A plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Tertullus called Paul not just a leader of the sect of the Nazarenes, and using that phrase was, was derogatory, but now he, he, he speaks of Paul as a plague. He's a leader who brings pestilence and disease in the Jewish community all over the world. This is how Paul's own people, the Jewish people, describe Paul before a Roman judge. It's not a pleasant picture at all. Not a pleasant picture at all. When hearing such an image, we realize how much venom and how much poison erupted in the hearts and the minds of these Jewish leaders against Paul and against his message. Friends, let me ask you, how many of you would have been emotionally hurt and troubled and bothered by hearing such personal attacks if you were in the place of Paul? A plague? That's awful. And then, of course, bringing accusations that were not factually true Actually, pure lies. Very painful to hear such words. Yet look at how Paul responds. Look at his attitude as Paul responds in verse 10. Look at verse 10. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge. Notice, Paul does not say anything about what kind of judge he was. He doesn't say that he was a bad judge, nor does he say that he was a good judge. He just simply says it very, very safely and honestly 
knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Did you notice how Paul begins to make his defense? Cheerfully. He's cheerful. Friends, how could Paul be cheerful after he has just been slandered by su such a bad imagery and being accused of, of totally unfactual evidences, unfactual reasons? How could Paul keep his composure, his mindset, his frame of mind not to be bothered? How could he actually keep a mindset of, of cheerfulness? Perhaps Paul have has heard and remembered the instructions of the Lord Jesus who gave his disciples the following instructions in Matthew 5. Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Paul is able to maintain an attitude of joy as he is defending himself and the way of Christ. He doesn't have a lawyer to represent him, but he has joy that fills his heart in this trial. Friends, the way of Christ is not only to be lived joyfully, but it's to be defended joyfully. Even when we have been slandered because of the name of Christ, even then we must keep an attitude of joy so we can defend the way of Christ joyfully. Friends, it's so easy. When we either read in the newspaper or we, we hear in the news that the way of Christ is slandered and spoken ill of, and, and people bring in all kinds of accusations against Christianity or, or against particular views about Christianity, that whether it's about you know, homosexuals or whatever, whatever, is, whatever the hot topics are these days, and, and people misrepresent Christianity and speak so negatively of it, it's easy for us to start to be bothered, to allow anger, to allow disappointment, to allow bitterness. And we want to respond back with, with illness, and we want to respond back with, with harsh words, hard feelings. And Paul here gives us a beautiful example of how we can defend the way of Christ joyfully. Joyfully. Not with frustration, not with exasperation, because that will help no one if we retaliate back and we just, we just explode back. It will, have, it will help nothing in the cause of Christ. Here we see a Paul who is able to, to keep his composure and to keep an attitude of joyfulness as he is defending himself and as he is defending the way of Christ. Friends, can you, can you let the joy of Christ you rule over your heart even when slandered and accused falsely for the sake of Christ? Can we remain joyful in defending the way of Christ even during such times? This is what Paul does. The way of Christ is defended by Paul joyfully. But there's a second thing about the way of Christ that Paul engages in. The way of Christ is defined Biblically and practically. Paul defines the way of Christ biblically and practically. Now, since Tertullus accused Paul as leading a defaction from Judaism, 
Paul needs, feels a need to speak about what this way of Christ means. How do you worship God according to this way of Christ? Look at verse 14. As Paul defines the foundation of his belief system, he gives four characteristics uh, about how Paul worships God according to the way of Christ, which Jews call the sect. Look at verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the, prophet, in the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clean conscience toward both God and man. In other words, Paul is saying, notice how, how all of this, Paul prefaced with this phrase, according to the way which these guys, these Jews, call a sect. According to the way, this is how I worship God. Four things. The people of the way of Christ worship the God revealed in the Old Testament. According to the way, I worship the God of our fathers. Friends, that's important for Paul to say. It's important for Paul to, to, to stay very clearly that the way of Christ has not departed from the Old Testament. The way of worshiping God in the way of Christ is in accordance with how the fathers of the Old Testament have worshipped God. Sometimes you hear people who seem to prefer the God of the New Testament a God against the God of the Old Testament. Have you heard people pet the two, the two gods? pet the two Testaments, one against the other, and they would say, you know, I, I just want to stick to the New Testament. The God in the New Testament seems to be a nicer God than the God of the Old Testament. Have you heard people say that? Occasionally, I, I still hear people make those kind of observations. Well, friends, Paul's first response here in this passage should put to rest forever such misguided distortions that the New Testament somehow has a different God than the God of the Old Testament. Paul makes it very clear here, as he defends the way of Christ, is that he worships the God of his fathers, the God of the Old Testament. This is the kind of worship that is according to the way of Christ. But there's something else about this God of, of, of revealed in the Old Testament and the worship of God according to the way of Christ. People who, who live in the way of Christ... They believe everything in the law and the prophets. Did you see what, what Paul continues to say in verse 14? Believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Again, sometimes you hear people um, who, who make this contrast between the Old and the New Testament. And they actually seem to put more focus on the New Testament and somehow devalue or, or look superficially at the Old Testament and sort of put it in a closet. You know, it's there. I'm not speaking against it, but it's there. I don't need to think much about it. Notice what Paul says here about the Old Testament. He believes everything in the law. He believes everything written by the prophets. And by the way, this phrase of the law and the prophets is a, a description of the entire Old Testament, not just about the laws and the prophecies. It's a way to speak about the entire Old Testament. 
so that Paul believed everything about the, in the law and the prophets. Not just some parts of it, but everything. Amazing. And then something else Paul says about the way of, of worshiping God according to the way of Christ. Not just it's a God revealed in the Old Testament, not only that it, Paul believes everything in the Old Testament, but that he has a hope in God for the final resurrection of the dead. Uh, Paul got this hope from the Old Testament, uh, from the book specifically, from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, the, end, the last chapter of the book of Daniel, verses 2 and 3. God tells Daniel the following prophecy, the following word of prophetic speech. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Where did Paul get this hope of the resurrection from? He got it from the Old Testament. Paul's hope of the resurrection was a hope he had in God, the God of the Old Testament, based on the prophecies of the Old Testament, based on the Word of God revealed in the Old Testament. Yet, Paul makes it very clear that this resurrection of the dead is not just for the just. It's not just for the people of God. It's also for the unjust. They too will be raised. They too will rise not for God's eternal inheritance and promises, but for God's eternal punishment. Well, this is the kind of hope Paul had in the Word of God in the Old Testament. And this, wall, this is what Paul declares to a Roman judge. Friends, the way of Christ did not separate from Judaism. If anything, if anything, it was Judaism and the Jewish leaders that separated themselves from the promises of the Old Testament. And it was their own accusations against Paul and their own mechanisms against Paul that were full of injustice, full of deception, and they chose not to act justly. Yet Paul has his hope in a resurrection for both the just and in the unjust. And that's the last characteristic of the people who worship a God according to the way is that Paul strove to live with a clean conscience before God and before man. Look at verse 16. Paul says, If these are true, if I worship a God of our fathers, if I believe everything in the law and the prophets, if I have hope in God for the resurrection of the dead, of the just and the unjust, what does that mean for me practically? What does, what does the way of Christ make me practically, practically do? Practically, it makes me live with a clean conscience. Strive to live with a clean conscience. Paul says in verse 16, So I always take pains to have a clean or clear conscience toward both God and man. Yes, in light of the hope in God, in light of everything written in the New Old Testament, in light of the resurrection of the just and the unjust, Paul strives to live with a clean conscience. But notice how Paul pursues this conscience. He says in verse 16, it doesn't come naturally or automatically. He says he takes pains to live such a life. And he desires to do it always. Did you notice that? Did you see how Paul is striving to live with a clear conscience? Friend, if you're a follower of Christ this morning, and 
looking at you and, and knowing most of you, most of you are that. If you're a follower of Christ this morning, I wonder, does this attitude reflect your life? Do you have such a determination of consistency, of, of living with a clear conscience before God and before men? Or do, we fa- or do we bank on the fact that since Christ has died for all our sins, we will be fine in the day of judgment? So it doesn't matter how we live today. Friends, such is, such is the lie of Satan to sort of dull us in not wanting to live with a, lo- a life with a clear conscience, both before God and before man. How it, we live matters. And we see in Paul a strong determination to live with a clear conscience toward God and man. This is the way of Christ. This is how Paul defined the way of Christ, both biblically, tying it to the Old Testament, but also practically by showing how it affects him and how it makes him live such a life. Oh, friend, do you worship God in this way? In the way that Paul worshiped God, in the way of Christ? Is this the way you follow Jesus? The way of Christ was not just defended joyfully. It was not just defined biblically and practically. There's a third thing that Paul does here about the way of Christ after he's put in prison and made to wait a long time. The way of Christ is declared courageously. The way of Christ is declared courageously. After Paul finished his defense, Felix chose to delay making a decision on Paul's case and to allow Paul, or to make Paul stay in prison, but to allow him some freedom in prison. While holding Paul in prison, we hear, or we know, the the text tells us that actually... Felix had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Now, friends, this is an important description. This Roman governor was not totally oblivious. It was not totally new to him what this way was about. He had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. That's why perhaps he was favorable to Paul, allowed him some freedom in prison. But also because of that, And because of what he heard Paul say, Felix chose and desired to listen to Paul again, privately. He had some accurate knowledge of the way. So Felix wants to hear some more. But this time, Felix doesn't come alone. He comes with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish woman. Interesting. Why would Felix bring his wife to hear Paul? We don't know. But we do know what Paul spoke about to Felix, who already had an accurate knowledge of the way. What did Paul speak to Felix about? Four things. Well, it's really about one thing developed in four sub, subcategories. Look at verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. In the public trial, Paul spoke about the worship of God, the God of the Old Testament, and how Paul continues to worship that same God and, 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 believe, and, and continues to believe in what 
that God revealed in the law and the prophets. But now, Paul unpacks the message about Jesus. And Paul spoke not just about Jesus, but about faith in Jesus, about the need to put one's trust in Jesus, about the way of putting your life in, in, in following Christ as a means of, of putting your faith in Jesus. Because we know from, from the book of, of James that even, even the demons believe and they shudder. So it's not just a, a mental ascent. That's not the kind of faith that Paul is speaking about here when he speaks about faith in Jesus. It's a kind of faith that actually turns our lives and makes our lives and gets our lives to actually follow the way of Jesus. Felix already had some accurate knowledge about the way, but Paul needs or feels a need to define more carefully, more accurately, what is this faith in Jesus? Now, friends, when we think about talking to someone about faith in Jesus, we have a tendency to assume or to think, or the first thing that comes to mind about faith in Jesus is John 3.16, right? It would be an a, 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 a easy scripture reference to go to and speak to people about faith in Jesus. Just speak about John 3.16. But notice how exactly Paul unpacked his message about faith in Jesus. Let's continue to read in verse 25. He reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Did you hear that? Yes, speaking about faith in Jesus was not just a quick formula or a canned presentation of who Jesus was. Paul unpacked the message about Jesus in how it relates to three realities, especially for Felix and his wife, Drusilla. The reality of righteousness, the reality of self-control, the reality of the coming judgment. Now, why righteousness? Why pick these three of all the things? And notice it says, Paul reasoned with them. Paul gave them careful and, 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 and well-thought-out argumentation and presentation about these things. Why these things? Well, righteousness, this is what Felix, la Felix lacked. He was a rather brutal governor. Actually, he was the opposite of what Tertullus described him as and flattered him as. The text tells us he was looking for bribes. There was no righteousness in this man. So when Paul spoke to Felix and Drusilla about faith in Jesus, he spoke about God's requirement to live righteously. And, and Felix was way off from living that way. Friends, you know what? Every human being is way off from living righteously according to God's standard. The gospel tells us all mankind has fallen short of the glory of God. We all have turned away from God. All of us. That's why we need Christ. We need to put our faith in Christ and we need to turn to Christ. In Romans 3, 21, Paul said, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although 
the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The truth of the gospel is that in Jesus, there is an alien righteousness that is offered to us from God. If only we would respond to Christ in faith, turning away from our sin and putting our trust in Christ. Oh, friends, this is the hope of the gospel. This is what the gospel calls us to do. If you've never turned to Christ in this way, I pray you would do so today. Paul spoke to Felix and Drusilla, not just about righteousness, but about self-control. Now, self-control refers to a person's mastery of his or her pleasures and desires. And this too, Felix lacked utterly. He was a man given to pleasure. Um, we are, uh, history tells us that Drusilla was his third wife. Actually, Felix persuaded Drusilla to commit adultery against her husband in order to marry Felix. So she did. And remember, she was a Jewish woman. Not only were they not allowed to, by the law of the Old Testament, to commit adultery, not only was that very clear, but also a Jewish woman at that time was not allowed to marry a Gentile. What was this lady doing, married to a Gentile? Man, was it his position of governorship? Was it his, his influence that, that swayed her to, to come and, and, and live with this man and marry him? We don't know. But bottom line is both of this both of these, Felix and Drusilla, were in a mess. We're in a relational mess. And Felix, not only he was a lover of pleasure, but he loved money. He loved people's approval. Of course, Drusilla as well lacked self-control and lacked, lacked righteousness. So when Paul speaks to this couple... He chooses the kind of things where the gospel sort of confronts them with their failures. You know, this is not the kind of John 3.16 that just speaks about the love of God. This is the kind of gospel that sort of confronts you with the standard of God and shows you how utterly, how utterly you have failed in it. And why would Paul speak about these matters? Well, in one sense, because faith in Christ produces the fruit of righteousness. Faith in Christ produces the fruit of, of self-control. Faith in Christ produces ethics in us. By the way, remember one of the fruits of the Spirit inside of us? When the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of us, He produces self-control, doesn't it? So that people who worship God according to the way of Christ are people who live out that fruit of self-control. Felix knew about the way. He had an accurate knowledge about the way. But his life was anything but that. We have reduced the message about faith in Jesus to be an easy believism that does not affect our lives. But friends, true faith in Jesus affects our lives. It changes our lives. Now, putting our faith in Jesus is not based on our ethics. We don't come to Jesus by living rightly. But once we come to Jesus, once we put our faith in Jesus, we begin living rightly because He enables us to do so. 
We would have no power in and of ourselves to live in according to God's ways. The way of Christ leads us to live righteously in self-controlled lives. Lastly, Paul spoke about this, to this couple about the coming judgment. Friends, the message of Jesus, faith in Jesus, includes this news, this talk about righteousness and ethics. And these matter because of the coming day of judgment. God, the righteous judge, will judge rightly. Unlike Felix, who was corrupt, waiting to receive bribes or acting by doing favors to people, the God of the universe will judge without partiality. He will judge rightly. He will judge every sin. Oh, friends, this is why we need the righteousness of God. Because our righteousness will never be able to acquit us. Our righteousness will never be enough to declare us right with God. And when Felix heard all these things, verse 25, we are told he was alarmed. He was alarmed. Friends, it is okay if the gospel alarms us. It's okay. It should. It should alarm us. And it should alarm us especially to prompt us to turn to Christ, to lead life back to Christ, to embrace Christ by faith. The message about the coming judgment should alarm every human being. And I wonder, has the message about the judgment of God ever alarmed you? And has that alarm led you to embrace Christ? If, if it never happened... I pray that this morning you would be alarmed. I pray that, you, that in your soul there would be an alarming, an awakening. Yes, the coming judgment of God is coming. He will judge without partiality. You cannot, we will not be able to bribe this God. He will not act according to his whimsical favors. He will judge rightly. The only way for us to be judged by the perfect and holy God on that day is if we have the righteousness of Christ upon us. If we, have, if we are clothed with Christ's righteousness. Because our righteousness will never be enough on that day of judgment. That's why we call people today to embrace Christ by faith. And when we do so, it truly changes our lives. Now friends, take a step back. Take a step back. Paul does all this. He speaks about the judgment of God to a Roman judge who has the ability to declare sentence over Paul's own life. Think how courageous Paul had to be, not only to speak about Jesus Christ and about the way of Christ, but actually to unpack the meaning of righteousness, the implication of self-control, the coming judgment of God. He was, he was courageous. And yet Paul spoke about these things to him as he described the way of Jesus. Paul could have spoken more softly. Paul could have spoken only about the love of God. Paul could have spoken only about the forgiveness of God. Paul could have spoken only about the benefits of God. But Paul did not preach a cheap gospel. Paul did not preach just an easy believism. Paul spoke to this, to this governor with courage and with faithfulness to the truth. Friends, 
as we look back and we look at this entire first official defense that Paul gives before this Roman judge, we realize that Paul is not just defending his own life. Paul is not just trying to save his skin. Paul is actually trying to defend the way of Christ and to save the skin of this very judge and his wife who had, no, who had knowledge about the way of Christ but have rejected it. And even after being alarmed, they chose not to respond but were overwhelmed by the love of money and were overwhelmed by the, by the love of, of pleasing people. And even today, such loves and desires continue to keep us away from responding to Christ. Friends, Paul defended not just his life. He defended the way of Christ because it was misrepresented, because it was distorted before this Roman judge. And Paul did it joyfully. He defended the way of Christ joyfully. He defined the way of Christ by tying it biblically to the Old Testament and showing practically what it meant for Paul to live that kind of life. And Paul declared the way of Christ courageously by speaking about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Friend, I wonder, do we have this kind of honesty? Do we have this kind of courage? Do we have this kind of knowledge about the way of Christ that we can defend it when it's ill-spoken? when it's misrepresented? Would we distort the way of Christ by making salvation only a matter of easy believism? I pray we learn from Paul of how he spoke about himself and how he spoke about the way of Christ. May, he, may the way of Christ continue to abound and spread through us. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious God, we praise you for the way you have given Paul courage, insight, discernment to speak truthfully, to speak lovingly, to speak joyfully, to speak courageously about the way of Christ. Oh Lord, enable us, help us as your people, as your church, to have the same kind of courage, to say, have the same kind of zeal, have the same kind of truthfulness. Have the same kind of mindset and attitude of joy as we speak about you in all kinds of settings. Give your people your Holy Spirit. Give your people your words so that we may represent the way of Christ. Truthfully and joyfully, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.